Well, it's no surprise what we're going to be discussing today. I have no doubt that we all woke up this morning, we all came here with an understanding of what it is that we were going to be talking about, that we were going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And likewise, I also have no doubt that many of you have heard a resurrection sermon 50 plus times. Um, I've probably heard a resurrection sermon close to that myself. And yet, it's my hope that we are still able to rejoice in the fact that we do serve a living Savior, that this is the greatest event in all of history, especially for those who are in Christ, especially for those who know Christ. I have watched well over 50 football games and eaten well over 50 hamburgers, and I'm still down for a football game, and I'm not going to stop eating hamburgers anytime soon. And I hope that with me, you guys can rejoice in the fact that we get to reflect on this great truth that Jesus is alive, that he is living. He has conquered the grave. Our king has risen from the grave, and he is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our God is alive. And so we need to be on guard. We need to be careful against growing apathetic of this truth, this foundational fundamental truth of Christianity. And I would say, especially for us, it's particularly pertinent because we just recently went through 10 sermons in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection. And yet it should still ring glorious in our ears that our God is alive. And as we were going through many of those messages in 1 Corinthians 15, we were focusing pretty heavily on the theological implications of those verses. What does it mean for us and how do we apply it to our lives? And so this morning, I want to start by looking at the historical account of the resurrection. And then we will uh, make our way back around. And we will close out with some theological application of the resurrection. So what happened 2,000 years ago when Christ was raised from the dead? And what does it mean for us today? And before we really jump into this historical account of the resurrection, uh, I want to focus, first of all, on the fact that this resurrection was no surprise to God. He wasn't taken off guard by the resurrection. He was certainly not taken off guard by the cross. And I think we can sometimes have that kind of view in our minds that the cross was somehow God's plan B, that he had to change his plans along the way because of man and the sinfulness of man. But the cross was always in view for, for God. In Acts 2.23, it says that Jesus was delivered over to the cross by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was always in his mind that the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. This was always the perfect plan of God. And just as the cross was not God's plan B, the resurrection is not God's thrown together answer to Jesus' death. So we need to have that in mind as we enter into this study on the resurrection of Christ, that he knew well beforehand that he was going to die. He knew well beforehand that he was going to be raised from the dead. And so I want to go through the book of Matthew and look at Matthew's account this morning of the resurrection. And I want to start by looking in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 
verses 22 and 23. And here we'll see that Jesus predicted not only his death, but also his resurrection. Matthew 17, 22. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So, in my Bible, I actually have an exclamation point after the fact that it says, and he will be raised on the third day, because I'm living on this side of the cross. I'm living on this side of the resurrection. I have an understanding of the victory that that means for the Christian, that our God has not only paid for our sin at the cross, but he has risen afterwards. However, the disciples, right after hearing this fact, that he will raise again, it says that they were deeply grieved. They didn't understand the victory that we understand today in the death and the resurrection of Christ. They had a different perspective, a different point of view. Jump forward with me a couple of chapters into Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, we see another prediction of both his death and resurrection. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Again, this is a prediction of both his death and his resurrection. And see with what certainty he says, he will be raised up. He had absolute certainty that this was going to happen. This, again, was not a surprise to God. It did not catch him off guard though it caught the disciples off guard. And again, you think about the fact that Jesus just got done telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered over. He's going to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and then he's going to be raised up from the dead. And what is the response from the disciples? Well, right after this is where we get the account of uh, James and John sending their, their mom to jockey for position in eternity before Christ. He had just declare to them, he's going to die and raise again. And they're saying, well, can we have those spots on your left hand, your right hand in eternity? Uh, they were not thinking along the lines of our king, our Messiah is going to the cross and he's going to be resurrected once again. The Jews would never have claimed a quote-unquote defeated Messiah, one who didn't come and establish a kingdom and set up his kingdom with all power and all authority in their understanding and their estimation of what that should look like, ruling on this earth with a, a scepter in his hand, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm as God did in the Old Testament. That was their view of their Messiah. They would not have accepted a Messiah who was crucified and resurrected. They didn't have this understanding of a resurrected Christ. Even though we do have Old Testament passages that allude to a resurrected Savior, this was a mystery that was later revealed that they were unable to see, even though Christ had just told them that he was the Messiah, that he was going to be crucified and resurrected. They weren't connecting the dots. They weren't making those connections that we have before so clearly now in retrospect. We saw this when we were going through 1 Corinthians that uh, Paul preached that which was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, according to what he had said in the Old Testament, that he was buried, he was 
resurrected. He rose again according to the scriptures in the Old Testament. So they were there, but they didn't have that understanding. They didn't have that mindset. And then one more uh, prediction of his resurrection. This one we'll borrow from the book of John. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that nobody takes my life from me, but I lay my, doubt, I lay my life down of my own accord, and I have the authority to take it up again. So once again, we need to understand that Jesus was entering into both his death and his resurrection with a full understanding of what was going to take place, of what was going to happen. And we are going to uh, pick up the, the narrative uh, right in between Christ laying down his life and taking it up again. So turn with me forward to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll pick up right after the death of Christ, literally, as he is breathing his last. And as we're looking at this, I want us to uh, pay special attention to the fact that there are two different positions that people are going to take. Even prior to the resurrection, after the death of Christ, we see that God is working and that man is plotting. And we're going to see two different responses to the death and resurrection of Christ. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split and tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. So again, we see all these incredible, miraculous things happening. Things that don't happen on a daily basis, right? People raising up out of the grave and walking around, that is definitely supernatural. And these men in verse 34... Um, they saw this and they responded, truly this was the Son of God. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that they were repentant, but it absolutely means that they had a recognition of who this God was. And I would venture to guess that they were in fact repentant. They had uh, understanding of this man who we just crucified. He was a Son of God and I'm going to place my faith, my trust in him, that he is God in a saving fashion. Now, let's go down a, a little bit farther in verse 62, and let's look at another response to these great, incredible things that were happening even before the resurrection. Verse 62. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, so this would be the Sabbath day on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So notice here that these guys, rather than saying truly this man was the son of God, they call him that deceiver. They go to Pilate and they say, that deceiver is 
saying that he's going to raise from the dead. They seem to have more of an understanding and, and recognition and awareness than the disciples themselves had. They were in an upper room um, grieving. But these men, they were uh, getting ready for what Jesus had promised. And not that they had given much credence to the prediction that Jesus made when he said that he would raise himself from the dead, just as we looked at in Matthew 17, Matthew 20, and other places. But they were taking uh, a precautionary action against his disciples, who they thought, well, surely they're going to come and seek to steal this body away. These were the religious elite men of the day who were going to the... Uh, the emperor's representative to the powerful man who was in charge, and they were seeking uh, help in stopping the disciples from presumably going and stealing the body of Christ. These were the same men that we read about back in verse 41. In verse 41, it says of the chief priests, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him. Um, these were not friends of Jesus. These were enemies of Christ. The, as I said, religious leaders who were advising the rest of the people and how they ought to live their lives and how they ought to conduct themselves before God and find favor with God. And they're seeking to preemptively uh, stop what they see as a, uh, a sleight of hand by the disciples to go and hide the body. They were set out with power and authority. They had a guard that was granted to them. Soldiers who were going to guard this tomb, guard the body of Christ. And they had authority from Rome. They were to put a seal on this tomb so that they could know that if anybody were to touch this seal, they were messing with the, the power of Rome. They were messing with the most powerful people in the world. And it would be known that they were to stay away from this tomb. Now, when I was a, a kid, I naively thought that uh, what they were doing was establishing a, a sort of plausible deniability. that They knew that Jesus was going to raise, that he had promised that he was going to raise. And so they were uh, sending out a, a group of soldiers so they could say, oh, we tried to stop him. But they absolutely didn't believe in what Jesus was predicting. They didn't believe in the authority of Christ or uh, trust in the disciples. They thought the disciples were surely going to steal this body. Let's continue on in Matthew 28, verse 1. And here we'll see, going back to that, that first response, those who had faith, those who trusted. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. And they ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Notice their response back in verse 8, that when they left the tomb, quickly they went with fear and great joy. They were terrified to be sure. They just saw this angel who came down and his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. I think I'd be a little bit terrified too. Again, going back to Isaiah 6, how Isaiah was terrified as he was standing before these angels. He fell down. He realized his place before such a holy God, just as these ladies did. And they were fearful, yet they had great joy. And going on into the the next verse, in verse 9, it says that they fell at his feet and they worshiped him. Notice that they were able to worship him, that they actually took a hold of him, that Christ was really there, that he had a tangible body. He had a physical body, the same physical body that we see in Luke 24 when he's walking up and down the road to Emmaus with these men. He's really walking. Or in John 20, 28, when uh, he actually shows up again before some of the disciples who doubted, namely Thomas, right? And he put his fingers into the hands and the side of Christ where he was pierced. And Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. Or in chapter 21, when he's eating with the disciples, they have breakfast there on the beach, which he is only able to do because he has a real physical, tangible body. He really raised from the dead. He wasn't just some kind of spirit who was walking around, but he had a true body. And again, we see that these women, these ladies, they responded in belief, in fear, yes, but also joyful worship. And as we continue on in the text, I want us to notice that even then, the resurrection was already being questioned. Even from the very get-go, there were common objections to the resurrection, to the truth of the reality that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. So let's look at some of the ways in which the resurrection was denied. Uh, Just this last Thursday, we gathered here, many of us, to talk about the reliability of the Bible. And we mentioned that the reliability of the Bible is is so high that uh, the Bible is indeed the most attested book in all of antiquity, that there is no greater proof for any other book than there is for the New Testament. And in the same sense, Jesus is the central figure of the New Testament. And the resurrection is the absolute pinnacle of his ministry. It is the, the crowning event of what we see in the New Testament. It is his premier work. And uh, even from the very beginning, this event was widely questioned and And rightly so, because this is a miraculous work, right? The very miraculous nature of a man rising up from the dead, that is something that should be questioned. However, we see that they came to a poor and blatantly a a dishonest conclusion about the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. So let's look at some of these uh, denials of the resurrection uh, just by reading verses 11 to 15. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. 
And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. So they came up with this plot to say his disciples came and stole his body. And Matthew says right there that it was a widely spread plot, a widely spread lie that even continued until his day. And it still continues around to today that the disciples came and stole the body. This is the first theory, the first lie really about the resurrection of Christ, that he didn't in fact rise from the dead, but his body was just taken. And yet, if we look at history carefully, we will realize that these men who are being accused of stealing this body of Christ all died a gruesome, brutal martyr's death. Uh, Save John. John is the only apostle who didn't die a, a martyr's death, but he had uh, hot tar poured over him, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos. At any point, he could have said, oh, we're, we're just lying. We took that body and we stole it, and yet they didn't. Uh, many people die for a lie. We see that all the time. The men who flew into the Twin Towers, they died for what is a lie, but they didn't believe it to be a lie. People don't die for what they know to be a lie, what they know not to be truthful. And this lie was soon followed by many other lies, many other quote-unquote theories or denials of the resurrection of Christ. Theories that, again, just like this one, still float around until today. Some of the most popular theories of the denial of the resurrection of Christ is the, the swoon theory, that he wasn't really dead when he was on the cross, that they took him off prematurely and they put him into the grave. That this man who was beaten and scourged, this man who had his hands and his feet nailed to a cross, who had a spear thrust through him that just happened to pour out water and blood. This man who was taken down and put into a tomb after being wrapped in 100 pounds of spices, somehow didn't suffocate under those spices, was able to get up and roll away this huge tomb, get past this guard of Roman soldiers, and just sneak around in Jerusalem amidst all these people who were looking for him, uh, the millions of people who were there for Passover, and nobody happened to notice this man. Well, that's the swoon theory, that he just swooned. He had passed out, and they didn't know these men who were tasked with this very important uh, task of killing these men, of crucifying them, whose own lives would be at stake if they didn't follow through with that accordingly. Uh, they messed up because he had just swooned. Uh, another theory is that these women who went to the tomb, they, they were just women, right? They were first century women. They weren't that bright. They happened to go to the wrong tomb. When they went to this wrong tomb, they didn't realize this isn't Jesus' tomb. And they saw, well, it's an empty tomb. And they just made up this story. Okay, well, Jesus must have risen. And they made up this story about this angel coming to them. And they took that story and they passed it along to these other disciples, to a bunch of other people. And in fact, when they, quote unquote, saw Jesus, they were hallucinating. This theory uh, suggests that even when these more than 500 people, as we learn from 1 Corinthians 15, saw Jesus at the same time. They were just hallucinating, sharing in this same hallucination. Well, we know, of course, that when somebody hallucinates, it's something they do by themselves off in a corner. We don't share in our hallucinations just as we don't share in our dreams. It would be really weird if we had the same exact dream as somebody else, let alone 500 people. That does not happen. And 
uh, all of these objections, all of these denials, all of these theories could really easily be answered by simply presenting the body of Christ. If Christ indeed had not risen from the dead, then all they had to do was provide the body of Christ, this man who people knew very well, who went all throughout the region, performing these miracles, feeding people, raising other people from the dead. He was well known, and they could simply show his body. However, the, the main objection, the foundational problem for those who are espousing these theories, these objections, these denials of the resurrection of Christ, is that they deny the reliability of God's revelation. This wasn't just the, the problem for these people who were saying that, yes, Jesus' body was stolen. We're going to come up with a slide to cover our own skin. But this is the problem that we still have today, that people deny the fact that God has revealed himself to us uh, through his word. This happened then and it still happens today. And these people have a desire to come and to poke holes in a biblical worldview. They want to try to show us how the Bible doesn't make sense, how Jesus could not have possibly risen from the dead. However, they do so without providing a, a positive assertion for not only what happened at the resurrection, what happened with the body of Christ, but even for uh, being able to account for the very basic questions of life. Who am I? And where did I come from? And where am I going? These are questions that the critic is unable to account for. They're unable to answer for. They will arbitrarily submit to these laws of logic that they can't give any reason for. They don't know where they come from. They can't account for why we're here, uh, why we uh, are desiring to do things in a logical sense, in a way that makes sense, why we drive on the right side of the road here and on the left side of the road in other parts of the world. It doesn't make sense if we can't account for a lawgiver who has given us a law. These are people who strive to live a life of order, and yet they want to claim that we accidentally burst forth into this life from a chaotic disorder. Uh, foundationally, the issue with people who deny the the resurrection of Christ, they deny the God who revealed to us the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead and are unable to account for even the, the fact that we're trying to speak coherently, that we're trying to think coherently. Our biblical worldview is the only one that can make sense of reality. It's the only one that can make sense for the fact that Jesus is alive. And we cannot have a biblical worldview while rejecting the resurrection of Christ, which many quote-unquote Christians attempt to do. We cannot deny the resurrection of Christ and call ourselves a Christian. It doesn't compute. It doesn't line up. Jesus said that he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather scatters. And we cannot sit on the fence. And each one of us is personally accountable to uh, to provide an answer for who Christ is and how he is alive. These are very important questions that each one of us must answer because our faith is not just a historical faith, but it's a faith that is founded in and, and grounded in reality. It has real implications, real application for today. And so with that said, let's look at some of the theological applications of this resurrection. The resurrection really does two things. It, it verifies Christ in, in several ways, in ways that he had 
presented himself. And it also qualifies or enables Christ to do certain things that he would, un that he would otherwise be unable to do if he were still on the grave. So some of the ways that Jesus' re resurrection verifies him, it verifies him in his deity. It is quite a claim for anybody to say, I am God. Now, this happens all the time. This happened all the time, even in Jesus' day. And Jesus, while he was never so overt about it, he absolutely made claims to be God. They were veiled claims to uh, veil his his reality, the reality that he is God from certain people while sharing that with other people. Uh, the I am statements that we find in John where he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And before Abraham was, I am. He is connecting himself with Yahweh, with the one true God of the Old Testament. When we see Jesus exercising his authority over demons, that is something that the one true God of the universe does. When he exercises his authority over nature and he tells the waves, peace be still, and the waves listen to him, he is proclaiming that he is God. When he says he is Lord even of the Sabbath, when he forgives sin, all these things are pointing to the fact that he is God. And this truth is verified by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection verifies his sacrifice. The fact that God is pleased with his sacrifice, that the wrath of the Father is appeased by the sacrifice of Christ. Many times in our Old Testament, we'll see phrases like uh, the, the Lord was not pleased with their sacrifice or their sacrifice uh, was a stench to the nostrils of God. But when we look at Jesus, we see God saying, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. And this is verified by the fact that he is resurrected. There was absolutely no fault found in him. He is the perfect sinless lamb of God. And while it pleased God to crush him, it pleased him also to raise him from the dead. The empty tomb is evidence that our God cares, that he is intimately involved in our lives, in reality, that he works miraculously. The fact that he raised Jesus from the dead shows not only that he cares, but that he is able. And if he is able to raise Jesus from the dead, he is able to do anything that he desires to do. He is able to take and mend marriages. He is able to heal addictions. He is able to change hearts, not in some kind of way that makes you the, the center focus of God and what he's trying to do. He's not always going to do those things, but he is able and capable to do those things. He rose from the dead. There is no uh, restraint to what Jesus is able to do. And if he is able to raise Jesus from the dead and breathe life into Jesus, he is able to take and to breathe life into us who we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. We were once enemies of God. And yet God has taken us and he has made us alive together with Christ. He has given us a new life and new hope in Christ. He can raise us to new life, just as he rose Christ to new life. He can take our sinful, messed up past, and he can pay for that with the blood that he shed on the cross. He is able to do that because he is God, and he proved that at the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection not only verifies these and many more things about who he is, about his character, about his nature, but 
his resurrection qualifies or enables him to perform certain ministries to the church, to his people. I want to look at the fact that because Jesus is alive, he is able to act as our intercessor. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 8. It's a great passage. It talks about Jesus being our intercessor. Romans chapter 8, and starting in verse 33, says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Jumping down to verse 38, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor uh, principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he is able to act as our intercessor. Nobody is able to come before us and to say that we don't belong to God if we do, in fact, belong to God. He is the one who is interceding for us. He is the one who is advocating on our behalf as our intercessor. Further, he acts as our mediator. He intercedes for us on behalf of uh, the adversary or anybody else who wants to come and accuse us before God, but he mediates directly between us and the Father. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, only one way for us to be right with God. That mediator is man, Jesus Christ. Let's look over in Hebrews, and we'll see the the purpose and the, the implication of Christ's mediation. In Hebrews 9.15, the author says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, for this reason and so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We can only receive eternal inheritance if it comes from one who is eternal, again, namely Christ. We see that further down in verse 28, which says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, he is only able to appear a second time because of his resurrection. Had he not risen from the dead, were he still in the grave, he would not be able to appear this second time. Let me read to you this quote from John MacArthur uh, talking about how he is able to appear this second time. John MacArthur says, On the day of atonement, the people eagerly waited for the high priest to come back to the Holy of Holies. This is in the Old Testament. And when he appeared, they knew that the sacrifice on their behalf had been accepted by God. In the same way, when Christ appears at his second coming, it will be confirmation that the Father has been fully satisfied with the Son's sacrifice on behalf of the believers. And it's at this point that salvation will be consummated when Jesus comes back a second time. And just as a high priest in the Old Testament was waited upon to see if he was able to come back, if their sacrifice was accepted, we're told that Jesus' sacrifice is accepted because he is a perfect high priest. He is a sympathetic high priest. He is a high priest who can relate with us because of his resurrection. 
we can't sympathize with a dead man, right? But because of Christ's incarnation, because of the fact that he lived and he went through the same things that we went through, he was tempted in the same way as we are, and he died and rose, we are able to relate with him. Hebrews 4.15 says exactly that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There are many other things that that Jesus is able to do because of his resurrection. Uh, He would not be able to adopt us into his family were he in the grave. Uh, He told us in John 16 that he must leave so that he can send the Holy Spirit who can be with us. We are able to uh, be in Christ, in a body of Christ, because of his resurrection from the dead. This has far-reaching implications. But the reality is that we do serve a a God who is alive. We can see historically what happened at the resurrection. It has been preserved for us so that we can see that we have first-hand eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. Many of them, over 500, who attest to the fact that Jesus is alive and that has true realities for the Christian, for those who are in Christ. It also has very true realities for those who are not in Christ. It means that he is alive and he is able to judge and every idle word will be held against those who are not in Christ. We serve a a living Savior. And as believers, we can know that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's not an unfounded faith, but it is a faith that is grounded and founded in an historical account of who Christ is. We can know that uh, we, we have uh, clarity through Scripture that our faith is real. He is alive. Our Savior is not dead. That He is not in the grave, but He is risen. He is not just idly dormant, but He is active, ministering on behalf of His saints. And not only that, but He is coming again. Uh, with reference to power and glory. He is coming not as a meek lamb, but he is coming as a raging, roaring lion. And for those of us who are in Christ, that is great news because he is coming to rescue us out of this domain of darkness. He is coming to take us into a place where we will no longer struggle with the presence of sin. Again, for those of us who are not in Christ, that should cause us to fear and to tremble uh, just as the soldiers feared and trembled when they saw this angel come down as looking as as lightning as as white light what we do with Christ and how we understand his resurrection has eternal implications either causing us to sing praises to his glory or hopefully it causes us to fear and we do know that the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and hopefully that will drive us to uh, bow before him that we would humble ourselves and come before him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are alive, that we serve a risen, living Savior, that we have hope for a future. We have hope for eternity because of you, that we can account for the past. We can account for uh, creation. We can account for our 
ability to, to think and to function because of who you are, that we have a mediator and an intercessor, a high priest, that we have an advocate because of who you are, because of your death and burial and resurrection. God, we pray that you would help us to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received, that we would be uh, pleasing before your eyes. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to share your love with those who don't know you so that they too might be resurrected to a newness of life rather than to an eternal judgment. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.